Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Jacob Smith, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Southwood, and I want to welcome you to Grace. If you're new here, you are joining us uh, about three-fourths of the way into our year-long study of the book of Romans. Romans is a letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, and sent to early believers in the city of Rome back when the Roman Empire was in full power. And as Paul was writing to these people he'd never met, as he's writing to churches that he did not help plant, he knew that they had a responsibility, they had an opportunity to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the world. And so as he's writing to them, as he's giving them instruction around a faith and, and, and life and belief and behavior, what he does is over and over and over again, what we've seen, hopefully, as we've been reading this verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week by week, is that there is this underlying thread of why the gospel is such good news, of why the good news of Jesus Christ is, in fact, the greatest news that we could ever hope to hear or to proclaim to the world around us. And one of the reasons why the gospel is so powerful. One of the reasons it's so good for us to know and to live out is because the gospel empowers us, it enables us to serve the Lord by submitting to other people in love and respect. This is what we see in Romans chapter 13. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open up Romans chapter 13. If you want to go there on your phone, we'll have the verses on the screen as well. But Romans chapter 13, where we'll be this morning, is really entirely focused on this behavioral aspect, this living out of our faith, specifically in the way that we serve the Lord through submitting ourselves to other people. And this is something that is challenging for us. It's challenging for me because there's something in us that doesn't always want to submit. There's something in us that, that kind of wants to do our own thing or maybe make our own mark. There's something in us that wants to sort of rebel against maybe some of the authority structures in our lives or in our world, right? This is just, it's how we're wired. I mean, you look at across our, our civilization, you look across society and you see just a bunch of rebels, Right? Like even, you know, America itself, we were founded by a bunch of good old rebels, right? Who said, no taxation without representation, come on now. Like that's, that's how they spoke. That's, that's the accent. You look across even just human architecture, right? You look at, we, we come across a river, we're like, I don't want to stay on this side of that river. So what? We build a bridge. We're like, I'm getting across. I don't like walking on the ground. I'm going to build a skyscraper. Hot dog. You know, that's, that's what we do. We want to rebel against most of the things in our world. It's something that happens to us as adults. And honestly, it starts in us, even as children, as we see in the life of this girl right here. Can you sing the alphabet? Yes. Yes, I could. Let's hear you sing the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, T, C, O, G, W, S. You're not singing the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S. Cookie Monster isn't the letter of the alphabet. It goes Q, R, S, T, U, V. You're just teasing me. W, X, Y, and Z. Now I know my ABCs. Next time, you. Cookie Monster. <laughs> Next time, Cookie Monster can do it with you. I'm leaving. I love you. I love you too. Thanks. A little rebel, right? <laughs> 
a little rebel who doesn't want to do what that puppet wants. And this is true for all of us. There's a part of us that wants to push back on any type of submission, on any type. I mean, even as I say that term, we're like, I don't want to, oh, like, I don't, there's a part of us that doesn't want to do that. Why? Because I think many times we have this sense in ourselves that we, we consider, we think, we're convinced that other people need to earn, right? We expect that others must earn respect or love from us. And yet the reality is that when we read scripture, we see time and again that God is calling us to live differently, that he's not calling us to live lives that are all about us, that instead it's lives that are all about him. And one of the ways that our lives reflect him and his desires and his heart and his will and his purpose is that we submit to other people in love, in honor and respect. And so as we read through Romans 13, what we're gonna see are kind of three main kind of prompts from Paul to early believers. He's gonna talk to these early believers about this need, this command from the Lord to respect those in authority, specifically governmental authority. He's gonna talk then about how we are called to love our neighbor unconditionally, regardless of their actions, regardless of their behavior, that we should be those who give love, who are moved by compassion, And ultimately, he lands on our motivation for these things. He lands on our motivation for this behavior, which is that we should be living lives expectant of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That ultimately, he's the one that we are serving. Ultimately, he's the one that we are honoring, even as we love and honor other people. It's all for the sake of his name and his glory. All right, so if you read with me in Romans chapter 13, we're starting in verse 1, where Paul says this. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except by God's appointment, and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Now, if you were with us last week, you maybe remember that at the end of Romans 12, Paul kind of gives this long list of these commands, ways that we as believers should be living out our faith, the way that our belief manifests in behavior. And what he closes with at the end of Romans 12 is this reminder that we should not seek our own vengeance, that ultimately vengeance belongs to the Lord, that ultimately God is the perfect and righteous judge who will in fact hold people accountable for their actions. And so as he closes that in Romans 12, I think it's very significant that immediately after this sort of charge of like, hey, vengeance is the Lord's. What he's doing in 13 is he's, he's kind of giving a, a bit of a, 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 a kind of a, a nice, comfy little blanket of reassurance to the people. And he's saying, but remember, not all of that justice is going to come in the last days. He says, in fact, God will enact some justice even here and now. And so that's why he begins to speak to this role of the government, of the civil government. And government is something that is instituted by God. We have three institutions from the Lord revealed in scripture. He institutes marriage and the family in Genesis three. He institutes civil government in Genesis nine. And then eventually what we see is he institutes the church. After Jesus rises to the clouds to be at his father's right hand, he establishes the church. It's the third and final institution of the Lord for people. Now, none of these institutions are perfect because they all involve people who are broken by sin. And yet the Lord says, I have a plan and a purpose for these institutions in your life. 
That's why Jesus would tell his followers, hey, pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's, pay your taxes. That's why here Paul is beginning Romans 13 by saying, you need to be subject to, submit yourself to governing authorities, recognizing that ultimately God is the ultimate authority and these authorities only exist because God God allows it. And he elaborates on it starting in verse two. He says, so the person who resists such authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will incur judgment. So Paul's just laying out very simple reality. It says, if you are disobeying, if you're resisting the authority that exists, ultimately you probably will find judgment. There will be consequences for your actions. For rulers, verse three, for rulers cause no fear for good conduct, but for bad. So do you desire not to fear authority? Well, do good and you will receive its its commendation. All right, so here Paul is speaking about this work of doing good, of doing what is right. Now, there's been a lot of uh, scholarly debate around, okay, is, is Paul speaking about doing what is right in whatever the government authority's eyes might be? And there's a lot of issues with that, right? Because there are times where there are governmental entities or governmental structures that are, in fact, contrary to the character and will of God. There are times where governments have completely lost sight of what is right, of what is good, and so there, is, there, is, there are occasions, there are moments that we'll talk about here in a minute where the government is requiring, is, is demanding that people disobey the Lord. And we'll talk about that. But here, what I think Paul is getting at is not just doing good in the eyes of the government. I think what he's talking about is doing what is good in the eyes of God and the ultimate authority. So then even if you receive pushback, or, or, or consequences from the government because they don't like what you have done, there is still a commendation that comes because you are suffering for the right reasons. Okay, we'll elaborate on that in a minute, but let's get through this, this first passage. All right, so he says, so you should be doing what is good <clears throat> and you'll receive commendation because, verse four, it is God's servant for your well-being. But be afraid if you do wrong because government does not bear the sword for nothing. It is God's servant to administer punishment on the person who does wrong. Okay, so again, Paul is coming back to this kind of initial statement that he made in verse one, that God is the ultimate authority. He has allowed other authorities to exist. And in doing so, essentially, God has set them up as his own servant, right? Paul's gonna use this term multiple times, that government is in fact the servant of the Lord, that God works through these broken human institutions to accomplish his good and perfect will. Again, not that institutions are always perfect, but God will work through them, generally speaking, to accomplish what is good. And so through government, there is a form of justice where someone wrongs another person and therefore they receive a consequence, where someone does what is good and they receive commendation. Right, because God is using human institution to accomplish his own will. Therefore, verse five, it is necessary to be in subjugation, subjection, sorry, not only because of the wrath of the authorities, but also because of your conscience. And right, so here Paul is, again, he's, he's helping us distinguish that yes, there is an element of subjection of our submitting to government that, that avoids the wrath of that government. It says, but also remember, there's a, there's a higher authority. 
Right? He's appealing to our conscience. Our conscience is, is something that is guided and directed by the Spirit of God. Therefore, our conscience is, is more important than simply the rule of law. Because our conscience tells us if we are walking according to the will of the Lord, the King, the creator of all things. So that's what we need to be paying attention to. That's what we want to walk according to. And so for this reason, verse 6, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants devoted to governing. Again, he says this is one practical way. You pay your taxes. Again, Jesus said the same thing in his ministry. Because these authorities are God's servants for the purpose of governance. And so, verse 7, pay everyone what is owed, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Paul addresses this idea of civil governance with this very simple, essentially, command that our responsibility is showing respect where it is due. Respect for the office even if the person in that office, even if the person in that position has done nothing to earn our respect, to gain our respect, to gain our allegiance, he says, this is our responsibility to respect and honor the authority that God has allowed, that God has appointed over our lives. Now, I think it's very significant. Many scholars agree it's very significant that Paul talks about submission and not just obedience, And it's because submission, the term that he uses there in being subject to governing authorities, it's much more encompassing. It's a broader idea than just simply obeying what is told to you. Submission or being subject to is this idea that encapsulates not only your actions, but also your attitude. And so it's this, this temperament, it's this, this, this motivation, this, this guiding kind of idea in your mind that, okay, I'm going to respect, I'm going to honor the authority that God has put in place, not just with lip service, but I'm going to truly do what I can. I'm going to truly seek to live in a way that is honoring and respectful to those people. Now, it's also significant that Paul doesn't just say obedience because, as many scholars agree, Paul is certainly leaving room open for civil disobedience. This is something that occurs occasionally in scriptures or in our scripture. We're told uh, even right before or around this time in Acts chapter five, Peter and some of the apostles are preaching the name of Jesus Christ, preaching the good news. And the religious leaders are saying, you need to stop. You, you no longer can you talk about this Jesus guy. We, don't, we won't allow it. And Peter looks at those authority figures and he tells them, we are here to obey God, not man. All right, so there was a moment where he says, you know what, we, in, in, our, in our diligence, in our dedication to obeying the Lord's command, we will have to disobey the commands of these people in an authority position. Now, what's also important is that as they made that statement, they also then willingly suffered the consequences that came because of their civil dis- disobedience. When they were taken to jail, they went to jail. They didn't start a rebellion. They didn't start this big insurrection. They said, okay, we're going we're gonna to go to jail. Now God, spoiler alert, God's like, guess what? You're not staying in there. Boom, and he opens the jail cells and angels appear and, like that's, and they get out. But that's not always the case. It's not always guaranteed. In fact, the vast majority of the apostles, they die. They're put to death by authorities because of their obedience to the Lord. But it's something that they accepted. 
It's the same thing we see happen uh, in the Old Testament when Daniel, Daniel's in a, a foreign, under a foreign empire, a foreign king who does not love the Lord. And when that king says, no one can pray to anyone except me, Daniel says, I, I have to obey the Lord. I, I have to continue to pray to my true living God, not to this human king who thinks he's God. And because he prayed to the Lord, he was sentenced to spend some time in the lion's den to be put to death. And Daniel willingly suffered the consequence of his actions. He went into that lion's den. Now, again, God delivered him from that. The king went up, showed up the next morning, and Daniel's just chilling with the lions. He's like, oh, you guys. You know, and he's just, he's hanging out because God closed the mouths of those lions. But again, these are some special kind of moments that don't in any way invalidate the general principle. In fact, as one scholar put it, he says that Paul's uh, insistence on submission rather than just pure obedience, it's allowing for civil disobedience when the government requires, not just permits, but requires disobedience to the Lord. There's a big distinction there. There might be governmental structures that allow for disobedience to the Lord's will. And there are other structures that maybe demand that we disobey the Lord. In one, we must disobey the man in charge because our allegiance is to the one who is higher. In others, if it's simply permitted, that's not a reason for rebellion. Now it's a reason to be champions of what is good and what is right, but it's not a reason for rebellion. As I was told many times as a boy growing up between two sisters, I can't always control the actions of other people, but I can control how I respond to what they do. Kathy Smith drilled that into my head because I needed to hear it. Our responsibility is to honor and respect. Doesn't mean that we just obey the the, the sinful commands of anyone who's above us. But it does mean that our default, it means that our guiding light is, in fact, I'm going to show honor and respect to those that the Lord has allowed to remain in charge. Now, this is really difficult for us because, as I've already kind of said, authority can fail in its responsibility. We have a lot of grievances. We might have a lot of issues with the government structure that we are under. We might have a lot of issues even with other authority figures that are even detached from government. Maybe it's in our workplace, in our classroom. And those authorities, as I said, they fail. They certainly fail. But what we're told here is that we are seeking to live lives. As he said in Romans 12, we do all that we can to live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on me, I live at peace with everyone. And part of that means that I'm a responsible citizen. I pay my taxes, right? I I vote and I serve responsibly. I give respect and honor to the office that God has allowed to exist in my life. And so very practically speaking for us, I think this should motivate us to be praying for our leadership. Yes, to vote according to conscience. Yes, to to serve according to conscience, to to seek to to seek out the Lord's will in our lives and in our neighbors' lives, but ultimately we are are fools if we think that our vote or our voice is somehow more powerful than our prayer. We should be asking the Lord to guide, to direct, asking the Lord for his mercy, his blessing, his favor 
in our lives and even in our government, in the lives of our leaders. Paul says this is one of the ways that we live out our faith, right? By respecting authority. But he's gonna move in verse eight into another realm of our lives of where we are called to not just be good citizens, but to be good neighbors. He says this in verse eight, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. All right, so Paul right there, he says, remember you're paying your taxes, you're paying your revenue, you're, you're giving honor, you're giving respect, right? He says, you're giving these things that are owed. And so kind of naturally in verse eight, he says, so you're not, you're not owing anyone anything. And now Paul's not saying, he's not making a statement about debt. He's not saying you should never be in debt. To, you shouldn't have a home mortgage. You should never have a car payment, you never have a student loan. That's not what he's saying. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about healthy, responsible borrowing. He says, you should loan to those who need it. You should borrow and, and then pay back generously, right? Paul's not speaking about, he's not giving financial advice. If that's your conviction, that's fine. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Here he's saying, you are, you're owning up to these debts. You're not, you're not allowing any debt to remain outstanding, except, he says, your debt to love, in other words, this is a debt that you can never hope to fully repay. It says the debt that you will always owe is to love one another. Why? Because loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. Loving your neighbor is the greatest command that God has given to us, right? Paul goes back to those early commandments in verse nine. He says the commandments of do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and if there's any other commandments, they are all summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself, right? All of these commandments, all of these actions, this adultery, this murder, this stealing, this coveting, what it is, those are all things where we are taking, right? Don't take someone's spouse. Don't take someone's life. Don't take someone's property. Don't desire to have what they have. It says we are not called to be those who take, we're to be those who give, Right? He's quoting from Christ who says that the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, all of the prophets hinge on this command. If you are loving your neighbor the same way that you instinctively love yourself, you are in fact fulfilling the law of Christ. That's why Paul says love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If I'm loving my neighbor well, then I am naturally not going to step into those sinful actions that were previously prohibited in the 10 commandments. Because remember earlier in Romans, he says, we're not, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore. Instead, we belong to the law of grace, the law of Christ. And in the law of Christ, Jesus says, love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. So as responsible citizens in our governmental authority structures, we're also to be Loving, compassionate neighbors who love people. Why? Because we love the Lord, right? It all stems from our devotion to the Lord. Our devotion to Christ, what it does, it brings a debt of love for our neighbor. I mean, I've read this passage before, but I won't, I'll tell you, it wasn't until this week, beginning of the week when I was reading through Romans 13, it really just stood out to me. It really jumped out at me. This idea that, that my love is in fact a debt, that I owe to the people around me, a debt that I owe to my neighbor. It's a whole other way of considering. It's not like this is just bonus, like icing on the cake of like, oh, and also 
guess what? I'm going to love you. Oh, <laughs> good job, Jacob. Like, that's not it. Here, Paul is saying that you, in fact, have a debt of love because you have received from the Lord his grace, his love, his compassion. So my devotion to him motivates my fulfilling of this debt for others. I remember when my wife and I, before we had kids, it, it was really, uh, it was challenging to really love all children, right? It's just a part of, I think, growing up. Like part of being in our early 20s, we would see other babies and I was just, I was kind of, honestly, I think some of it was just fear because I'm like, I don't know, am I gonna break it? Like, what is going on? Like, it's not talking. How are you doing? Like, oh, it can't control its head. And so like, I had a, a hesitance around just tiny babies. It was just, it was difficult. It was challenging for me. But I'll tell you that once our friends, once the people that we loved, once our siblings started having children, oh, it was incredibly easy to love those babies, to love the babies of the people that we loved. And then, you know, we became parents and now I just want to hold every baby. Like I just, oh, sniff their head. Mm, yeah, this is good. <laughs> babies are the best. It was challenging unless... It was the child of someone that I already loved. It was easy to love that kid. If we love the Lord, if we are committed to following after him, then what we're told in scripture is that God wants us to love the people that he has made, the people that he has surrounded us with. And so if we love the Lord, we should naturally, we should instinctively love those who are made in his image that are all around us. And maybe they haven't earned our trust, and that's fair, but what we're told is they don't have to earn our love. It's a debt we already owe because of our devotion to Christ. And yet this is challenging for us because many times we can start to view people as less than human and more as just sort of problems. I remember facing this even in ministry, in college ministry. I, I began, I remember I was four or five years in and I was just feeling burnt out. I was starting to feel just fatigued in ministry. And I wasn't really sure why. Like things were going well. I was enjoying, you know, generally my work. I was enjoying the ministry. But what I realized is that I had reached this point where all of my time with just normal average students was spent putting out fires. I had inadvertently gotten into this position in our college ministry over at our Anderson campus where every student meeting that I had that wasn't with maybe some leaders, wasn't with our staff, if I was just meeting with, you know, a, a typical student, nine times, 99 times out of 100, I was meeting with that student to help put out a fire, uh, an, a relational issue, uh, a thing with parents, a thing in their life, a behavioral problem. Like I was just, I was constantly in this crisis mode with students and it was making me crazy and I was wearing me out because what was happening was I was rewiring my mind to view students as just problems. I was seeing students with problems as just, you're a problem. Like, and that was, that was happening. And so I realized that in my life and in my ministry, I needed to make some changes. I started meeting with students just because I really wanted to. I started meeting with high potential students to talk about life and following the Lord and spiritual development. And oh, once I made that turn, it was just, it was a game changer. And I was reminded of the simple truth that God 
has called us to live lives not just in isolation, running after him, but he wants us to live lives that are surrounded by other people, where we're encouraging and challenging, where we're being encouraged and we're being challenged. A life in community, following after him, surrounded by people that aren't just problematic, but people who are in fact our brothers and sisters in Christ, people that we owe a debt of love and gratitude and compassion towards. And in order for that to work, I think practically for us, we need to be praying for compassion. We should be asking the Lord, God, give me a heart like yours. Lord, give me the perspective that you have. Help me see people as made in your image, worthy of the death of Jesus Christ. God, help me love people the way that you love people. God, help me forgive as you have forgiven me. And as we're praying for the Lord to to bring that compassion into our hearts, into our minds, what it does is it enables us, it empowers us to love our neighbor. It empowers us to fulfill that commandment that in itself fulfills all of the law. So Paul says we should be good citizens. We should be great neighbors. And he says, and we're doing all of this because we are living expectantly for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how he closes the passage, the chapter in verse 11. He says, and do all of this, right? So he's talking about the behaviors in Romans 12. He's talking about the behavior here in Romans 13. Do all of this because we know the time that it is already the hour for us to awake from sleep for our salvation is now nearer than when we became believers, right? It's a very simple and yet very profound statement. Paul's saying that every day, every moment, we are actually closer to the return of Christ than we were the moment or the day before. Our salvation is, our, our, the fulfillment of our salvation, he's not saying the, the forgiveness that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is near. He says, no, that's, that's complete. What he's talking about here is the fulfillment, the completion of our salvation is getting ever closer. He's speaking about this return of Christ. When every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the day that God will make all things right, right? Because that is ultimately the hope of our gospel. It's not just in what God has done, it's in what he has promised to do, right? Paul is saying that we have to remember that all of our life is moving towards that day. No day is guaranteed, right? Jesus told his followers that all the time. He says, you don't know what tomorrow brings, so don't worry about it. Like, don't, don't stress. You don't add any time to your life by worrying about what tomorrow has. Let tomorrow worry about itself. We don't have tomorrow guaranteed, but what we do have guaranteed is that day. We have today and we have that day. That's our gospel. That while we were still sinners, while we were lost in rebellion, while we were committed to, to going our own way and rejecting the command and the will of God, as we were just refusing to submit to his will, God looked at us and he says, I love you too much to leave you alone. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live. He fulfilled the law and all of its requirements. He earned all the right standing. He earned all the blessings. He lived that perfect life and yet he still went to the cross and he died. Not because he had wronged or sinned against God. He died because of our sin, because of our failure, because of our rebellion, because of our lack of submission. But then he rose on the third day to prove that he had power and authority over the sin and rebellion that previously held us captive. 
And so anyone who calls on his name might now be saved because he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So he says, you call on my name and you're free from shame. You're free from condemnation. The slate is wiped clean. You receive forgiveness from your heavenly father and you are reconciled. Your relationship is made right with your father in heaven by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And not only do we rejoice because we now have a life abundant here and now, but we have a life that extends into eternity. We have a life that really gets started when Jesus returns and brings us into paradise into the new heaven and the new earth where we live in perfect harmony with our father and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul is saying that is the mark on our horizon. That's the time we're shooting for. And so of course we live lives honoring to our father. Why? Because that's where we're headed. We're headed for that day when he's going to take us to himself. He's gonna examine our lives and he's gonna reward us based on our obedience. We don't obey so that God will love us and accept us. But because God loves us, because God has accepted us, we obey. And so the Lord says, I want you to live a life that glorifies me, that brings good to your neighbor. Paul says, this day is coming closer and closer and closer. Verse 12, the night has advanced toward dawn. The day is near. So then we must lay aside these works of darkness and put on the weapons, the instruments of light. So let us live decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness or in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in discord and jealousy, but instead put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. Paul says we live in light of that day. As one pastor put it, We don't know when that day's coming, but we know that it's coming. Therefore, we live like it's coming. Paul says, you need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This same terminology is used in some ancient Roman text talking about someone putting or taking a role in a dramatic play. We put on Christ. We reject Christ. The, the foothold of sin in our lives. We make no provision for that temptation. Why? Because we know that every day we are getting closer to Christ's return. And so we live expectantly. We live hopefully and joyfully, knowing that the Lord is going to bring us to himself. With that sort of certainty, our lives will naturally change. I remember seeing this type of thing play out when I was in college. Dudes would get engaged and everything would change in their life. Like if a guy knew that he was like eight months out, 10 months out, a year out from his wedding, it was amazing to see the life change. Even for myself, the life change that took place. You'd be going out to dinner and you'd say, why is Jimmy getting a salad? And some would be like, yeah, he's getting married in six months. You're like, oh, I get it. Do some push-ups, right? Like that's, it was, there is a lifestyle change that happened. Why? Because that day was certain. That day was coming. And so suddenly it's like, yeah, I'm buying, guess what? There's a different soap for my body and for my head. Like, what? What are you talking about, dude? Like, it was wild. But lives would change. Behaviors would alter in light of the day that was coming that was so certain. It wasn't here yet, but it was coming. And so his life would radically alter. And yet for us, many times, I think this is difficult because we mistake God's patience for powerlessness. 
even though God has told us in his word, he says that I'm withholding my wrath, I'm withholding this final judgment because I am patient and merciful, because I want people to come to repentance, because I want people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, that's why I'm waiting. It's not because I'm powerless, it's because I'm patient. And yet we still fool ourselves into thinking, well, maybe it's not really coming. I remember we had this discussion in my community, the community group that I'm a part of. And we were talking about this return of Christ. And we had this question that we all kind of had to answer this question of, okay, what, like what percent chance would you give Jesus returning tomorrow? Right? We all wanted Jesus to return. Like we were like, hey, who wants Jesus to come back? Yeah, like every single one of us. But then the question came, hey, what, like, what do you think realistically in your mind, what, what odds would you have given or would you give to Jesus returning tomorrow? And all of us, myself included, were like, I mean, honestly, probably zero. Why? Because it just feels like something that is so far off, it's hard to even fathom. But what we're told in Scripture, what Paul's reminding us of in Romans 13, is that day is imminent. We don't know when, but we know it's coming. And so we should be living as if, or we should be living in a way that we are ready. We're ready for that day. And Paul says the way we do that is we remain in Christ and we remove temptation. We put on Christ, we put away sinful desire. And so often, I'm telling you, this requires community. If you're not in a small group here at Southwood, I would encourage you, talk with someone, go to our welcome desk after the service. You need to be surrounded by other like-minded men and women who want these same things. We need each other. Paul's speaking to a crowd. He's speaking to a group, a community of believers. He says, you all need to commit yourselves, remain in Christ, remove temptation. You need the challenge, you need the encouragement, you need the accountability that comes through one another. And so one of the ways that we live that out here at Southwood is consistently, we take time at the end of our Sunday services to pray, not just individually, but with one another. And so as we close this morning, as we prepare to sing our final song, uh, I have a few prayer prompts that I'm hoping that we can use and we can pray through with one another as we close. If you haven't been a part of this uh, or with us for this before, uh, I'll just briefly explain. Uh, what we're gonna do is in a minute, you're just gonna find a few people around you and you're gonna introduce yourself really quick. And you're gonna say, hey, we're gonna pray together. And it's gonna be great. Right, maybe say that out loud, even if you don't feel it. Just, it's going to be great. It's really going to be great. And this could be people that you came with that you already know, in which case don't introduce yourself. Obviously, that's weird. Um, but maybe it's people you don't. And just briefly introduce yourself. You're going to briefly say, hey, let's pray together. And I'll tell you this too. If you have a little crew, if you've got, you got a few prayer buddies with you, I would encourage you before you start praying, Look around. If, someone, if you see someone around you that doesn't have a buddy yet, invite them in. Invite them in. Everybody's going to have a buddy. I know it. So grab a few of those buddies, you know, two, three, four, five people, whatever it is, and you're going to share very briefly an answer to, I'd say, just one of these questions. One of these questions. Very practically speaking, based on what we've read in Romans 13, who is it that you could respect with your words and actions this week? You know, someone in an authority role. Or maybe briefly answer this question, who can you love with your words or actions this week? Who has God placed on your heart 
Now, you can be as specific or as general as you want. That's okay. All I ask is that you would be very brief. Be brief as you share. Because then the goal, the purpose of this time is to then pray. To pray with one another. To pray that the Lord would provide these opportunities. To pray that the Lord would provide the motivation and the strength to live out his will, to live out his purpose in these relationships and in these responsibilities. Okay, so find a few buddies. I'll wrap us up in a few minutes. Ready, set, go. Lord, we are thankful. God, we are so thankful that you've given us, Lord, the opportunity to come to you, Lord, in prayer, trusting that you hear us and that you answer us. 
And Lord, we pray that even as we go through this week, that we would continue to lift up the needs and the concerns of one another, that we would count one another's concerns as higher than our own, as you've instructed us, as we live out this life of being your followers, devoted to you, and therefore in debt of love towards our neighbor. And so Lord, we pray that as we continue, as we close in worship this morning, that God, that our hearts would be, God, inflamed for your glory. That God, that we would leave this place with a greater sense of purpose and passion. God, to see your name proclaimed, your gospel declared. God, your love poured out, your grace revealed through us in the spheres of influence that you've provided. So Lord, we thank you for the wisdom and instruction of your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to honor you with song. Lord, we pray these things according to your will. Amen.